Good morning. Welcome back to American View on this Thursday morning. Happy Halloween. Hope you're having a good one out there. I know the weather, if you're listening to us from Hillsdale on the radio, the weather isn't the best today. It's a little bit rainy, a little bit cold, but we're going to make it all the better here on American View, where Hillsdale meets the nation. I'm your host, Ben Dietrich. We're coming to you live from our studios in Hillsdale, Michigan. So today we are going on a book hour. It's a little special thing we're doing. Um, You know, every once in a while we want to take a step away from the regular news and get into something that um, can, it can uh, really help us learn more about our country. And in this case, about how one should teach American history. Now, most Americans have to take some sort of history still, but, uh, you know, there's a lot to be said about what that really entails. Um, When I was in high school, we took a, a history class and they had us read a book called A People's History of the United States by Howard Zinn. That guy takes a very negative uh, view of history. He is, was, in fact, actually a registered communist. Um, but it is a narrative form of writing about U.S. history. So this yesterday, I sat down with Wilfred McClay. He is a professor at Oklahoma University, currently visiting Pepperdine University. And... Um, his interview was was really interesting, actually, because he's written a new book, Land of Hope, and it's been the talk of all the major conservative news outlets. It started, I first heard about it when I read about it in the Wall Street Journal. He was recently featured in Imprimus, a speech he gave at the Curry Center. And now we're going to hear from him about what this book is about. And I think this conversation is very telling about how one should approach the teaching of American history. Um, and if there's a way to do that, that can be fair but also consider the fact that history for a citizen um, should be something that elicits perhaps a certain type of patriotism. Now we go to that interview. I'm really excited actually to talk to you about this book. We'll just dive right into it if that's okay. I was excited because um, I'm very familiar with Howard Zinn's People History of the United States. Um, you know, it's taught in high schools all across the country uh, as well as in colleges. Now, your book. I don't know if it was your intention or not, but it has kind of come out now as the opposition to this. The first question I have for you is, what were the reasons that you decided to write this book? Well, it, it, I really didn't write it to oppose Howard Zinn. <laughs> right. I did it because, um, uh, it, well, there's several things, but I, I think the main thing was that uh, a number of years ago, maybe even 15 or more years ago, I wrote a, a little book for ISI books called The Student's Guide to U.S. History. And it was part of the a series that ISI did of student guides in various disciplines, which was, uh, and they were really good. I, I think uh, a, a number of them were still around. Harvey Mansfield wrote the one for political theory and political philosophy and John Lukacs wrote one for history as a discipline. And so it was really mm-hmm. very, very good people. Um, and um, I did the one on U.S. history. And and uh, it was, you know, it's about 100 pages long. Although they gave it away for a long time. I think it now sells for a very nominal amount. Um, but a lot of people have read it, uh, mine. And I've had a lot of correspondence over the years with people who write to me and about it, and they liked it, and they, they like you know, they, they, they like the approach, and um, 
But one thing they always complained about is the fact that even though I had a bibliography and I had some recommended readings, I did not have a textbook. I did not point mm-hmm. people towards a textbook. And I didn't explain this choice in the book, but I would explain to my correspondents that, well, you know, I just don't think there's one that I want to assign. Um, now, the truth of the matter is every now and then I have assigned textbooks. In, in teaching the American History Survey, particularly when I was teaching it at the University of Tennessee. Uh, I had larger classes, and, and you know, the, the kids just wanted security of a textbook, and so I did it. But I was never happy, um, in fact, increasingly unhappy with um, the, the quality of the books that I was using. And... Um, and, you know, every now and then, my correspondents would not only say, why don't you recommend a textbook? And then I would say, well, there isn't one that I like. And then they would write back and say, mm-hmm. why don't you write one? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I, I uh, little by little, that, that sort of uh, piercing question began to, to uh, eat away at me. And, and I thought, well, you know, maybe this really is something I should do. And... Uh, variety of other factors came into play, and I, I just decided to launch into it. I had um, the strong support of the people at Encounter Books. Uh, I wouldn't have done it if they, they weren't interested in the idea. But it, and it really was more, in the end, their... Um, oh, I don't know. I, I can't say... Strike that. But, um, what I was starting to say. Sure. Um, um, it 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 was as much an interest on their part as it was on mine, but I, I thought you know it 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 would be important to offer an alternative. Right. And once I got into it, I I realized that I the situation was much worse than I had thought. That um, I probably used looked at about twenty twenty five textbooks pretty closely. Um, to get a sense of what the competition was doing, and um, and, and I, I I became convinced that this was really something that was badly needed, um, and uh, so I I chose to do it. I when I dictated there were certain things about it. I wanted it to be a book and not um, a sort of jazzy collection of sidebars and insets and right. uh, yeah, um, you know uh, the kind of self interrupted low attention span uh, uh, pseudo book that that is so much the norm um, I and I wasn't going to be you know sort of dictated to by um, what uh, textbook adoption committees in the various states um, wanted and and this was something that um, encounter was great and they 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 absolutely agreed with that that the the, 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 the kind of thing they wanted to support was a something that proceeded from the vision of a single person. So this is not a book written by a committee, which in a sense is much of what you see. Why do you um, think uh, in, Why do you think so many of those books that are, are written by committees, for instance, you know, end up with pictures uh, and they, they are, some would argue, dumbed down, you know, why, why does that happen, do you think? Well, I think, you know, Again, this is a this is a, a an opinion a lot of people disagree with, but I think we underestimate 
the capacity of young people to to read uh, with comprehension if we put a, a, a book in front of them that is readable, that is uh, um, that that's, that draws them in, that's that's intrinsically interesting, uh, without you know whiz bang graphics and and the rest of it. You know the thing that I found when I was looking at these other textbooks that surprised me. And this, this, I think, goes to the question about Howard Zinn and how mm-hmm. Howard Zinn did and did not influence my you know, approach to the book. One of the things I, I expected to find more than I did was ideological bias. I actually don't think you see a lot of ideological bias until you get to the 70s, maybe, um, the 60s and 70s. Um, certainly certainly not much before then. Um, uh, even the origins of the Cold War, which is you know, often you know, presented in, an, in a kind of skewed and, and biased, and ideologically biased way, uh, most textbooks are fairly straight. They still, they still don't like to admit that Alger Hiss was guilty, but, <laughs> but you know, uh, they're, 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 they're not terrible on... Things, but yeah. after I don't know the election of Lyndon Johnson or so, it just it, it gets goes bad. downhill so, very rapidly. And so, but but my my point here is that that really the problem is not so much ideological bias, except in recent American history, it is abysmally bad writing, writing that I couldn't read myself, and I thought, you know, get put this in front of a fifteen year old, a seventeen year old, um, no wonder they don't want to read it. Right. So I, I wanted to, to to make this a book that uh, um, that people would want to read. The young people, especially, would want to read. What surprised me, really surprised, I mean, it just knocked my socks off, is how how much people, older people, you know, the general trade book market, how much attention it's gotten there. It's gotten lots of reviews. It's um, I, I really thought it was a textbook first and foremost, but. Uh, uh, not a, a non-textbook textbook, right. a textbook that didn't look like a textbook. That's actually something that I might have had in common with Zinn, because Zinn, Zinn's book is, and part of the reason I think it has swept the field, is simply that it's well-written. It, it's exciting, it's interesting, it's got a, an argument, it's got a, 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 a plot. Uh, Narrative, know, it, it's yeah. A stupid it's a stupid argument that <laughs> that American history is all about the struggle of the haves and the have-nots, and generally the haves win. And uh, you know, that, that it, it's it's uh, even people on the left have been very. Eugene Genovese wrote you know a critique for the ages of Zen, but um, uh, it, even honest people on the left have, have acknowledged the, the sort of Manichaean right. view of American history. But I, but. Um, uh, but it is a view. It is mm-hmm. something that a young person can kind of uh, get get his or her head around. Um, so I had that in common. I did not. Um, I did not set out to write the book uh, as if to say, "Well, uh, Zinn says this about Columbus. I'm going to." Right. I, I, well, let me I, ask you I, about that. Wrong. I want to ask you about that. Um, you, you see what I'm saying? I, yeah. I just tell the story my way. I, I do, and I, I want to quote something you write here in the, the epilogue, um, and you say, Although it is important to do one's best to be objective, even when it involves confronting unpleasant and shameful things in our past, I cannot pretend to be neutral when the larger cause of America, 
in American history is involved. Um, so yeah. what do you mean by that? Well, I, you know, I can't be, um, I can't ignore the fact that I'm writing a book for Americans that is, um, it's not a view from nowhere. It is a view of an American for Americans that is explicitly designed to help um, young people and anyone that reads the book, but the young people particularly to uh, habituate themselves to the ideas and practices and history that goes with being American citizens. It's really about citizenship. The, the, the book is, is uh, right from the very beginning. I make this point that I, I want this to be a book that will help people to be good citizens uh, of their country. And being citizens is not just a matter of this is how you vote. This is uh, you know, the, 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 these are the sort of this is what the Bill of Rights says you can and can't do, or at least what you what, what government can't do. Um, it's more than that. It is a sense of membership. That this is a a long story. I call it the Great American Story. That um, that you uh, as a young person growing up here are are a part of, whether you know it or not, whether you like it or not. You're part of this story. Uh, and it is part of your heritage, part of your birthright to appropriate that story, make that story your own. So uh, that that's a big part of what I see. This is a sort of a heritage. Uh, we overuse that word heritage, mm-hmm. and or it sort of lost some of its weight. But it's a, it really is an inheritance. It's uh, the family jewels, uh, and and you know, with a few uh, <laughs> IOUs thrown in with the jewels. There's debt to the past, and um, and uh, there there are memories of uh, of good things and bad things, and all of that goes with this appropriation of of the story as one's own. So I, that's part of what when I say it's a sort of civics book, a citizenship book. I'm not just talking about the mechanics of politics. I'm I'm talking about a kind of initiation into membership that that uh, requires a knowledge of the story of right. where this all came from so you know for those out there that might be more liberal i imagine when they hear oh encounter books which is kind of known as a conservative publishing company um or at least it supports you know free market conservative ideas is publishing this book uh, it's a textbook that this is just going to be a conservative American textbook, um, you know, and it's going to be bound by a political ideology. How do you respond to that as well, which I think kind of goes to this point we just talked about? I mean, yeah, because a conservative's yeah. writing a book well, and they're open and they say they're conservative, does that mean the book is is going to brainwash this child that reads it into being <laughs> conservative? Yeah, yeah. This is the most unbrainwashy book you'll ever see, but I... I uh, uh, first of all, I do, it wasn't written self-consciously as a conservative book. It's really written as a, as a book about about America, and uh, mm-hmm. um, I'm not beating the drum for uh, conservative ideas. I, I, I accept to the extent that telling the story uh, about ways that free markets, uh, for example, since you mentioned that, uh, benefit um, large large numbers of individuals and right. that state control of the economy tends to to produce problems uh, yeah, um, that that those things naturally come up but I'm not 
I'm, I'm not ideologically uh, conservative in the book. In fact, I've gotten some feedback from people who said, why are you so fair to <laughs> all, the, all the liberals' bad ideas? Um, there, there's, a, there's a review up on Amazon where, where some guy has said, uh, I, you know, this book was a fraud. It's not, conserv- it's not really conservative. Right. It's not conservative enough. You know, um, and, uh, uh, you know, I, I can certainly <laughs> relate when to you that. Sort of you know? know that you, you know, you're in the right spot when you're getting yeah. a little bit from both sides, but, uh, um, it, it, it's, it's, I, as for it being published by Encounter, you know, I can't say enough good things about Encounter. I'm not going to apologize for that. If I had tried to write a book like this with any other publisher, they would have, they would have, um, uh, vetted me very carefully. They would have, there are things that I'm able to say that you just can't say in, um, mainstream, uh, textbooks, which, and, and remember, we have three textbook publishers in America. That's, that you know, Pearson, McGraw Hill, and Harcourt. That's, there, there are a few other little ones, but that's, those are the three biggies. Mm-hmm. And, um, they don't publish anything that hasn't gone through all the um, local regional tech, uh, textbook committees, every pressure group uh, from CARE to the uh, NARAL to whatever is, is going to have a chance to, to make sure that their perspective is adequately represented by their lights. And that's one of the reasons you end up with these horrible mishmash things is that um, all these interest groups get um, get a say over what goes into the text so that the, the, the assembling of the text really is an assembling. It's not reflecting the point of view of, a, of an individual author. Now, there, 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 there are a few exceptions to this, but not so much in the textbook world. That Walter McDougall, brilliant right. historian from Penn, has uh, written a, a very wonderful, idiosyncratic uh, history of America. I think he's on the third volume now. Uh, Jill Lepore of Harvard wrote one. Uh, recently, you know, people do try to do this, it and, does, and not in a textbooky way. And even from my own experience, and you know, high school, uh, I I remember those textbooks as well. They kind of stand out, the narrative style ones. I'm sure you're familiar with E. H. Gombrich's, you know, A Little History of the oh, World. Oh, it's, yeah, it's a classic. Well, that's an amazing book, and I have to say, that's a book that uh, um, I'm, I looked at and thought about. It. I mean, I didn't imitate it, but I thought about it. And right. I mean, it was a it was a, a a kind of model. I wanted to write a book that I mean I can predict the book is not going to be especially well received by the historical profession because it doesn't concern itself with uh, you know what what is the scholarship of the last five years and and somehow incorporating that. Now I'm I'm taking a much broader what? view that you know the. The educated, that educated Martians. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> let's let's talk about that for a second, because you know you mentioned just, the idea of, uh, you know, that it doesn't conform to what people currently might think of history, and I thought that that's really relevant to what you say in the beginning of the book. You quote um, John. All right, all right. So we're going to take a, a quick break there from the interview. We will find out what exactly I wanted to talk about at that point in the interview when we get back. Um, you're listening to American View right now, where Hillsdale meets the nation. That was just Wilford McClay. He is the author of Land of Hope, a new textbook by Encounter Books that is available on Amazon. Um, and we've been talking to him about his ideas on what should be included in an American history textbook, how they should be written, 
and moreover, how American history should be taught to our youth. So um, when we get back, we will continue to hear from him. And then after that, we will talk about education today in the United States, some stories that have come out as of lately about the way things uh, aren't going as people originally thought they would. Stay tuned on American View. We'll be back in just a little bit. back to American View, folks. Good to be with you on this Thursday morning. Happy Halloween once again to all our listeners. Coming back after a short break, we're going to continue our interview here with Bill McClay, or Wilford McClay, as it says on his book. He wrote the book Land of Hope. Excuse me. You can check out the full interview if you're just joining us now by going onto our Facebook page, American View, WRFH, or checking us out on Spotify, American View, Radio Free Hillsdale. We're also on Apple Podcasts. We'd love for you to shoot us a follow. So we're going to continue this interview um, where we left off. Uh, basically, right now, we're just getting into the point where we're talking about how some choose to rewrite history to achieve their own ends. So we're going to tune in right here as he explains this for my next question. Oh, you mentioned yep. the idea of... Uh, you know, that it doesn't conform to what people currently might think of history. And I thought that that's really relevant to what you say in the beginning of the book. You quote um, John Dos Passos. I hope I pronounced that correctly. And you, and yeah, you say, yeah, that's correct. Every, every generation rewrites the past. In easy times, history is more or less of an ornamental heart. Um, but in times of danger, we are driven to the written record by a pressing need to find answers to the, the riddles of today. And I, I really love that quote you put in there in the beginning. Um, it really reminds me of... Uh, something we always kind of talk about in Hillsdale. I'm taking a the Aristotle class right now, and um, Agathon is quoted in there of saying, you know, maybe you're familiar with this quote: "Of this power alone is even a god deprived to make undone whatever has been done." And uh, yeah, just the yeah. kind of the, you know, it's, it goes back to ancient times with this concept of people today or the time they're in wanting to rewrite history for their for their own needs. And I'm sure that that's something you've encountered. Yeah. And, and the, the, you know, part of, and actually does passes in that quote, is giving a, a, a little bit of credit to that impulse that we are, you know, we, we, we the, our view of the past changes um, naturally because of subsequent events that, that, uh, that cast a different light backward. But, um, but that's, that, 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 that notion of just history is a, 
utterly fluid thing that we can we can just kind of reconstruct in a way that um, is more pleasing to our present day conceptions. That that's that's a that's a real that's the problem, and it actually has the effect of obviating the real value of history, which is to to um, show show us something different from the present. Show us something that is is um, that's different from the present, but that as further on in the quotation, uh, um, Despasos says. Let me just read this sentence. Sure, please. In times of change and danger, when there's a quicksand of fear under Ben's reasoning, a sense of continuity with generations gone before can stretch like a lifeline across the scary present and get us past that idiot delusion of the exceptional now that blocks mm-hmm. good thinking. Um, that is why, in times like ours, when old institutions are caving in and being replaced by new institutions, not necessarily in accord with most men's preconceived hopes, political thought has to look backwards as well as forwards, which is why you're uh, reading <laughs> the books you're reading at, at, at Hillsdale uh, that, are, uh, that, that are a reflection of the mind of the past, but the wisdom of the past, and the... Uh, a wisdom that is so tested by thousands of years of experience. And, and it is, it's a tremendously consoling thing to even to look back at what someone like Agathon has said um, thousands of years ago and say, yes, I, I see that in my own experience today. I see yeah. the truth of what he's saying. It, it is something that comes close to being... Uh, a universal permanent aspect of human life of human history mm-hmm. um, and uh, uh, of the human the human human being of human nature um, so i i I thought that was a great uh, epigraph to lead off the book with and it's a way of saying that that uh, the the pastness of the past is part of what its value is to us that it's not exactly the present it's not an echo of the present in any kind of obvious, straightforward way. Um, uh, but it is our past. It is a part of us. Right. For us as Americans, again, this is getting back to your very good question about my uh, declaration of non-neutrality. I mean, I think I can't, you know, I, I can't be neutral about <laughs> human beings as opposed to other forms of life. Uh, uh, and it, it's it's not just because I'm anthropocentric. Uh, it's because of where I stand, of what, who, and what I am, um, that I uh, and, and what I believe that the, these these things are become of paramount importance. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I don't think there's. I think, and I only. I think it's only being honest to say that I'm not neutral about the, the cause of America. Be, it's, and it is not only because it's mine, but because I believe in the greatness of this country. And I believe that uh, um, as something that uh, Howard Zinn and I would only believe in the word great, but he would want to have evil <laughs> or malfeasance or whatever, you know, uh, attached to it. Uh, and I, I, uh, I think we have been far more... Um, uh, benefactor than um, than a malevolent force in in human history, but I don't blink our uh, our faults. Um, 
I'm sure that there are going to be some people who read the book and say, well, I want more on that. I want more. I want to emphasize these things. You know, the New York Times just came out with this project, the 1619 project, because they want to see all of American history as the reflected shadow of, uh, of, of the institution of slavery. And, and that's, um, that's just a lie. It's, it's, uh, it's, it, it's incoherent. You can't construct a history of the United States really seeing 1619 as the founding. Um, it's a, it's at most a kind of literary conceit, but, but it doesn't, it's, it's not, um, it's disproportionate. It gives a disproportionate weight to something that is certainly a regrettable, shameful, um, part of our past, but, uh, not the whole story, not any, by any means the whole story. And, right. um, so, um, the, yeah, the, go ahead. the title of the book, you know, Land, Land of Hope, um, and you, you call it a great American story. And like you, you just said, one of the main purposes of this book is to get people to, you know, appreciate what it means to be an American. That's also actually one of the, the features of the, the show we're on right now. It's called American View, and we try and talk to people from all over um, uh, who are prominent thinkers on these ideas. And, and I'd love to ask you, you know, what is it that you draw away from this book? Or in your view, what does it mean to be an American? Um, and what, how should we view citizenship today? Well, yeah, I mean, or, or membership. Let me maybe use that larger or, or seemingly larger word. Sure. Um, you know, I, I let me just say a little bit about the title because that is, you know, I, I, I say to people this is the first thing I wrote. And a lot of times, the title is the last um, thing that people write for a book, and, it's, and especially a book that's, frankly, going to have, you know, uh, or where marketing it isn't going to be a consideration, you know. But they they let me, this is another one of the many things about Encounter. They they let me write my title. It's my title. And, uh, um, uh, and, and what I wanted to convey was a s- several things um, that, if you look at the long view of, of American history, and I mean the long view going back to the first pre-Columbian um, immigrants, if we can call them that, uh, that we think are, are the, the people who populated the Western Hemisphere. You know, they we, we believe that they came from um, the northeastern part of Asia, you know, over the Bering Straits into what's now Alaska and kind of down on into the continent, all the way down to Tierra del Fuego. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and, uh, but, but that that's, you know, uh, and I, I sort of begin the book with uh, a question, you know, what, what drew them? What, what's going on here? Um, and, of course, we can't know. But what, uh, what I do think, and, partic- and you see it when you begin to look at the European uh, the Norse explorers, and then of course Columbus, and and uh, and and the, that crew. Um, um, there's a there's definitely a kind of sense of of moving moving to the west is moving in the direction of a of a sort of renewal of life, uh, and and that's one of the themes I I see running. Running through uh, the, the whole account of American history is that that westward movement 
at various phases in our history, has been accompanied by a belief that um, the human prospect is not limited by the conditions into which we're born. Just because I was born an Italian peasant in Sicily in a sort of brutal regime in which all I could hope for was to repeat the life my father had had and my his father before that and his father before that um, in crushing poverty and, and at the mercy of of um, violent revolutions and and uh, and, and the tyrannical leaders, uh, but that I could I could get on this boat and and go to America, a place that offered. Uh, if not a completely new beginning, although in some cases it is an entirely new beginning, a fresh set of chances. Uh, and that this has been for so many people who have come here and, and also ones who have just uh, been born here and grown up here and seen it as a land of opportunity. Um, it's, it's a spiritual quality about America that sets it apart. And it's something that I hope... We never lose. I use that word hope. And I hope we never yeah. lose hope uh, as, as a sort of central constituent element in what we are. Now, of course, there are lots of other things that go into answering your question about what does it mean to be American. And, it's a broad um, question. <laughs> and, and, and things like uh, our commitment to, to republicanism, small-r republicanism, our commitment to constitutional government as an expression of our 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 belief in self rule um uh the the the, uh, the 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 primacy of liberty in uh, in the way that we we understand our our social arrangements um it, you know a number of other things uh but but um i think this this element of hope as um, a sort of resident spiritual genius of uh, of of the american Way, way of life. You know, I don't use the term the American dream because I think everybody means something different by it. But I, I would see that as part of the American dream that you can, you, you can rise in the world if you, if you apply yourself. You can rise in the world. You're not condemned to be the son of your father, and that only. Um, uh, you, 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 uh, you can, you can, as we say, make something of yourself. <laughs> uh, right. these, these, these casual expressions we have uh, in Americans have so much meaning, uh, and they don't translate automatically to other cultures. Although, you know, Daniel Burston has a wonderful, uh, I, you can't prove this, of course, but he had, the, the historian Daniel Burston said that, uh, um, that, there, there's a, that the immigrants who came to America, by and large, have had a already had an elective affinity for um, for America uh, that, that, that they simply couldn't realize in their home country. Uh, I don't know whether you know uh, the name Peter Schramm, uh, 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 the late Peter Schramm, a, a very uh, wonderful conservative political scientist who was an, a European emigre. And, um, and he tells a story about how his father says, you know, we were born Americans. We were just born in the wrong country. <laughs> Isn't that wonderful? And and uh, that 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 tells yeah. you that it, it's it's something more than just the sort of facts of of the the American land. 
Uh, although it is, it is not just, I, I, I insist on this, it's not just a set of ideas. Right. America is not my just My next question, yeah, is it, it just an idea? Because it, yeah. do, it does seem if you it's run down that road, it gets a little bit, you know, I think you have to consider the geographical aspect of it as well. Otherwise, you can go down a slippery slope, can't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, and and, and but but there are people who um, who find their way here, for whom this well, it, it feels as if they are um, being you know reunited, reunited with a part of themselves from which they were separated at birth. Um, it's quite remarkable, and uh, it is one of the reasons. I mean, immigration is a terribly hot issue right now, and and I'm not by, by saying what I'm about to say. I'm not meaning to weigh in on the specifics of you know illegal immigration and borderlessness and all of that. But sure. I do think that immigrants, through the course of American history, have renewed periodically at times that we needed it. We re- renewed a sense of America's promise. Yeah. Um, and uh, and that is a fact that can't be gainsaid. I think it, it it it's 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 a it's a part of us. And again, it's something that we that we really don't want to lose. And I, I think um, you can say that you know today, even even if you are um, conservative, and you know even if you you have problems with illegal immigration, I think that's it's still very different than what you're talking about here, which is you know about immigration. Uh, I think. Americans wanting to have a say in that, uh, go down a whole rabbit hole of ideas there. It doesn't contradict anything you're saying. Um, And that's where we're going to leave that interview with Wilfred McClay. He's the author of Land of Hope. You know, quite quite an interesting conversation we had there, and I think it it talks about a lot of important things because on one hand, you don't want to be like the left where you basically only focus on a small amount of America's history and describe it strictly through a narrative of oppressors and oppressed. I think you really distort um, what America has done for the world and, and what you know it means to be an American citizen. If you hold a such a contrary and distorted view of American history that honestly I think when you look at it properly ends up being false, then you also rob the future Americans of the opportunity um, to understand what it not only what it means to be American, but why they should try and preserve their own country. Um, you know, what's the point of borders? What's the point of a country um, if you see no purpose in it? It was a great interview. If you're just joining us now, you're listening to American View, where Hillsdale meets the nation on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM, coming to you live this Thursday morning, October 31st, from our studios. In the last couple minutes we have left, I want to read you a little bit from this book to give you an idea of the way in which he writes. Uh, I'm going to read from chapter 18. I really enjoyed this section when I was going through it. This is about the ending of World War II. McClay writes, There was a warning on July 26th to surrender or or face the grim reality that the alternative to surrender is prompt and utter destruction. Then, when there was no surrender forthcoming early on the morning of August 6th, a lone B-29 bomber dropped the first bomb unannounced on the port city of Hiroshima, a major naval and war industrial center. It exploded as designed, with a blinding flash of light, followed by a towering fireball, shockwave, firestorm, and cyclone-force winds. Its destructive power was even greater than its creators had suspected. It killed 80,000 people almost instantly, 
and flattened four square miles of the city into rubble. Three days later, the second bomb was dropped on Nagasaki with similar damage. The second bomb convinced the Japanese Empire that they were now up against an irresistible force, and he surrendered, although he was allied, allowed to keep his titular status as head of state. So it continues later on. Um, for our present purposes, one consequence of the war stands out above all the others. It permanently transformed the status of the United States. Never again would it be able to return to anything like the remote, decentralized, bucolic, agrarian empire it once was. Never again would isolation from the world be possible, let alone desirable. Nor could it ever again look to Europe in the way that a child looks to its parent. All that was changed. The mantle of world leadership had passed to it. Indeed, it had been thrust upon it in a way it could no longer refuse. The mantle came to the United States not only because of its preeminent military and economic power, but because of the generous way it had employed that power in the world's hour of desperate need. Without the sacrifice and blood and treasure by the United States and its allies, the world would not have been able to elude the awful fate of domination by the Axis powers. No thoughtful person can contemplate that prospect without a shudder, followed by a wave of gratitude. And it was certainly one of America's finest hours. Forty summers have passed, said President Ronald Reagan in his speech to the veterans of Pointe du Hoc in France, Normandy, where they gathered once again at the windswept French cliffs on June 6, 1984. You were the day that you took office. You were the young, excuse me, the day you took these cliffs. Some of you were hardly more than boys with the deepest joys of life before you. Yet you risked everything here. Why? Why did you do it? What impelled you to put aside the instinct for self-preservation and risk your lives to take these cliffs? What inspired all the men of the armies that met here? We look at you and somehow we know the answer. It was faith and belief. It was loyalty and love. The men of Normandy had faith that what they were doing was right. Faith that when they fought for all humanity, faith that just a God, that a God that was just would grant them mercy on this beachhead or on the next. It was the deep knowledge and pray for God that we have not lost. There is a profound moral difference between the use of force for liberation and the use of force for conquest. You are here to liberate, not to conquer. And so you and those who did not doubt your cause, and you are right not to doubt. In the post-World War world, the idea of America as a land of hope acquired new layers of meaning. No longer merely a refuge or a frontier or an exemplar, the United States now found thrust upon it a role as a self-conscious leader for the world. And he continues here. Will America figure out how to live with that new image? That answer remains to be seen. He answers it in his book. That was Wilford McClay reading, or excuse me, I was reading from Wilford McClay's book, Land of Hope, an invitation to the great American story. Always worth considering these things, folks. You know, um, you always got to ask yourself the question. I think, I hope kids, when they hear this book, ask themselves the question too. Would they have what it takes to do what that supposed greatest generation did then? All great thoughts. You're listening to American View on Radio Free Hillsdale. Thanks for listening to this episode. We'll be back next week. Have a great day.